On the evening of June 18, 1964, 20 men gathered in a field in Hamilton County, Ohio. Most of them wore hoods and robes. Some were armed. Most were Klansmen. But two of those men were a reporter and a cameraman who recorded the scene whom the Klan had invited to attend. The local leader of the Klan, a man named Clarence Brandenburg, gave a speech. This is an organizer's meeting. We have had quite a few members here today, which are, we have hundreds, hundreds of members throughout the state of Ohio. I can quote from a newspaper clipping from the Columbus, Ohio Dispatch five weeks ago Sunday morning. The Klan has more members in the state of Ohio than does any other organization. We're not a revenge organization, but if our president, our Congress, our Supreme Court continues to suppress the white Caucasian race, it's possible that there might have to be some revengeance taken. There was more, too. Ugly stuff. Klan stuff. From the crowd. There were racial epithets and scurrilous lies and rhetoric blaming African-Americans and the Jews for the Klansmen's imagined problems. And suggestions that they be sent back to Africa and Israel. But there was no violence. Not then. Not there. Nobody was there but the Klansmen and the journalists they'd invited. And after the Klansmen burned the cross, and after one of the Klansmen repeated the same speech inside his shed with his hand on the Bible, everyone went home. The journalists took their footage and ran it on the local news. Was it a crime? Was it a crime when Brandenburg spoke those words about revengeance? Was it a crime for the other Klansmen to be there and applaud it? Was it a crime for the journalists to broadcast it? The United States Supreme Court wound up answering those questions. And in doing so, it changed nearly 50 years of law and set a standard that survives today more than 50 years later. I'm Ken White, and this is Make No Law, the First Amendment podcast from the Legal Talk Network and Popat.com. This is episode 13, Imminent Lawless Action. The state of Ohio thought that Clarence Brandenburg committed a crime in that field. They charged him with criminal syndicalism. It's a sort of statute that in 1950s was frequently used against communists and suspected communists. Ohio's criminal syndicalism statute broadly prohibited speech that advocated breaking the law. The law said, No person shall, by word of mouth or writing, advocate or teach the duty, necessity, or propriety 
of crime, sabotage, violence, or unlawful methods of terrorism as a means of accomplishing industrial or political reform. Hamilton County, Ohio, prosecuted Clarence Brandenburg for breaking that law. It was a very simple trial. The prosecution presented only the film that had been taken of the event and the testimony of a journalist who identified Brandenburg as the man giving the speech under the hood. Brandenburg argued to no avail that his speech was protected by the First Amendment, but the trial court rejected that argument. The jury convicted him, and he was sentenced to between one and ten years in jail and a $1,000 fine. Clarence Brandenburg's problem was that he was fighting uphill against 50 years of mostly bad First Amendment law. First, there were the World War I cases, like Schenck versus United States that we covered on this podcast, which emphasized the government's right to punish speech that created a clear and present danger to the country. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes articulated that test in Schenck, the same case that brought us the infamous phrase, fire in a crowded theater. Here's how he put it. The question in every case is whether the words used are used in such circumstances and are of such a nature as to create a clear and present danger, that they will bring about the substantive evils that Congress has a right to prevent. Now, Justice Holmes viewed the clear and present danger test as a means of protecting speech. No doubt it was somewhat better than the earlier test, which asked only if speech had a bad tendency to produce results the government didn't like. But in practice, over the next 40 years, American courts applied the clear and present danger test in a perfunctory way that did not protect speech and deferred to the government's fear of what speech might inspire. We can see some of the best examples in the anti-communist era of the 1950s, the Red Scare, that used the clear and present danger test to permit broad punishments of suspected communists. Here's what Justice Fred Vinson said in the case Dennis versus United States in 1951. Their conspiracy to organize the Communist Party and to teach and advocate the overthrow of the government of the United States by force and violence created a clear and present danger of an attempt to overthrow the government by force and violence. They were properly and constitutionally convicted for violation of the Smith Act. Put another way, even though the rule said that the government could only punish speech that presented a clear and present danger of harm, in practice, courts used the words clear, present, and danger quite flexibly. The Supreme Court's theory was that you could punish a couple of ink-stained wretches making handbills in some basement, because if they succeeded in persuading enough people to try to overthrow the government, that would be bad, even if it would be doomed to failure immediately. Here's Justice Vincent again. Obviously, the words cannot mean that before the government may act, it must wait until the putsch is about to be executed, the plans have been laid, and the signal is awaited. If government is aware that a group aiming at its overthrow is attempting to indoctrinate its members and to commit them to a course whereby they will strike when the leaders feel the circumstances permit, action by the government is required. The argument that there is no need for government to concern itself, for government is strong, it possesses ample powers to put down a rebellion, it may defeat the revolution with ease, needs no answer. For that is not the question. 
certainly an attempt to overthrow the government by force, even though doomed from the outset because of inadequate numbers or power of the revolutionists, is a sufficient evil for Congress to prevent. That was the rather unpromising status quo that Clarence Brandenburg faced when his case reached the United States Supreme Court in February 1969. Fortunately, he had a formidable litigator in his corner, Alan Brown, an ACLU lawyer. We don't know how Clarence Brandenburg, a virulent anti-Semite, felt about being represented by Mr. Brown, who was a Jew. But Mr. Brown was aggressive, fearless, and not afraid to defy convention. Now, there's a story of him picking up a giant dildo that the prosecutors had put into evidence in an obscenity case and wagging it in the faces of the jury and saying, this disgusts you, it disgusts me, but this is not obscene. Brown was the man for the job. But the course of litigation, like the course of true love, never did run smooth. Brown discovered that the film of the 1964 Klan rally had disappeared. He hoped that it would be found and delivered to the Supreme Court in time for oral argument. Pardon me, the film is an exhibit. The film is an exhibit. I pray it is. Alas, Mr. Brown's prayers went unanswered. The film did not reach the court, and it had to rule based on descriptions of the film. Fortunately, Mr. Brown was still equal to the occasion. At argument, the justices were concerned with whether the government should have to prove that Clarence Brandenburg intended to incite people to act based on his racist rhetoric. The government argued that you could just infer intent from the circumstances. But here's Justice Abe Fortas with a question to the government's lawyer, Leonard Kirshner. Well, there's no, I suppose it can be said that there's no question that he intended to uh, advocate whatever he advocated here. But uh, the next question is, uh, do you have to have some uh, additional proof to the effect that uh, he also intended that steps be taken to uh, carry out uh, this program uh, with respect to the Negroes and the Jews and so on that he described. Well, with the court's permission, it is my humble belief that you do not have to have anything further. If I were to go, and I use this as an extreme statement, but if I were to run down Harlem, shall we say, and say, bury the Negro, send them back to black Africa. You wouldn't last that long. Probably so, Your Honor. That's Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American justice, with the laugh line. Leonard Kirshner, the government's attorney, was on the horns of a dilemma. On the one hand, he wanted to avoid a standard that imposed on the government the heavy burden of proving that Clarence Brandenburg intended for violence to result from his speech. On the other hand, He needed an explanation for why there was no charge against the television station that ran the film of that same rates of speech. Because if just saying the words is enough, didn't they broadcast the words? Here's Justice Fortas again. Those words were carried on the network. Why wasn't that a violation of your law? That's, That's the question I started with. As I indicated with the court's permission, it is my humble belief that in addition there must be an intention to cause the violence, uh, the, the right. terrorism. Uh, so, 
The government conceded there had to be some sort of intent to cause unlawful action through the speech. But what about the likelihood of that happening? The justices wanted to know what surrounding circumstances supported the idea that violence might result. What was the context? Here's Justice Potter Stewart questioning Kirshner. What was the uh, uh, contemporary con- context in the Cincinnati community? Those, the, those riots in Avondale came in the spring of 1966, didn't they? Six, I believe it was 66 and uh, 67, if I'm not mistaken, and 68. But However, there was, at the time, uh, unrest. There was uh, marches at the time, I believe, in the south. There were the propositions, uh, specifically, I believe, the Birmingham situation was at or around that particular time. And there was civil unrest and dispute going out through the entire country. And I don't think it'd be just limited to the South as such. It was played up by the press and the news media. But there was no particular local situation in Hamilton County at that time. As to riots, no. That kind of unrest, racial unrest. I believe that there was... In any dramatic form at that time. There were civil, uh, there were protests uh, march within the concepts of legal protest, uh, demonstrations, uh, picketing of that nature at that time in Cincinnati, but in nature of riots of that nature, no, Your Honor. I mean, this was not part and parcel or a response to anything specifically that was going on in that community at that time. No, sir. Mm -hmm. It was basically a feeling, I believe, throughout the entire United States, however limited as such to the community. Justice Stewart seemed to be asking, how can we know if this speech is dangerous if we don't know the context? It's a fair question. And as it happens, we now know quite a bit about the context, particularly with the benefit of a half century of historians looking at it. I talked to Professor David Cunningham at Washington University at St. Louis. He's an expert on American extremism and the author of Clansville, USA, The Rise and Fall of the Civil Rights Era Ku Klux Klan. I asked him about the nature and activities of the Klan in Hamilton County, Ohio, as of 1964, and whether, in that time and place, they were seen as violent. One of the things I learned was that the media savvy displayed here, inviting a reporter and a cameraman to get the rally on the news, was not unusual. Yes, I think by and large, it's fair to say that they were quite media savvy. There, there were certain clan organizations, and probably the, the best known and most notorious of those would be the White Knights of the KKK in Mississippi that really saw themselves as underground organizations. And those sorts of groups would definitely avoid media coverage, would avoid outreach of that sort. But many of the largest Klan organizations during the civil rights era really did the opposite. They saw themselves as having some sort of a public function, saw their ability to build members, gain resources, and things like that as predicated on their public visibility. And so reaching out to reporters would not have been unusual in those kinds of cases. Part of that media savvy was a kind of plausible deniability about more overt calls for violence. The tactic we saw here in this speech, where the speaker was a bit more polished and the more explicit epithets and calls for violence came from the crowd, was intentional. As you say, the speakers would certainly be outright racist. They would be saying outright offensive things. 
but they often, in, in a fairly savvy way, towed a particularly sensitive line when speaking about violence. And they knew that militant claims, and often claims that at least hinted at violence, were a large part of their appeal. And they knew that that would be something often that would stir up a crowd, gain some energy, allow people to feel like that they should contribute to the group, whether it be financially or otherwise. And so they would often toe a line that would be encouraging of that sort of talk, but also know when to back off as a speaker. But that would often encourage a back and forth and a broader dynamic that really did talk about violence, speak of, a desire for violence, the acceptability of violence. But the speakers oftentimes were, I, I don't know if a step ahead is the right word, but they had a broader sense of how they could strategically sort of nod towards violence, but allow that energy to kind of come from the crowd oftentimes. In fact, the clan strategy may not have been to inspire immediate violence. The strategy may have been something closer to long-term recruitment and a sort of bigoted team building. I think during this period, there was less of an emphasis within the clan of encouraging lone wolf action, which does become by later in the 1960s and moving forward more a part of the clan's repertoire. During this period, I think the relationship of speech at a rally to committed clan violence is actually an indirect one. I think the clan oftentimes is quite strategic about the violent rhetoric that they would incorporate into an event like a rally as a way to build a following and the actual violence that they would commit. Because the reality during this period and basically every other period where the Klan has been active is that this is a violent terrorist organization. However, that violence was not committed through stirring up a crowd and having people go out typically and commit acts of violence, but rather to use that rhetoric to connect people to the Klan. And then the violence that could be committed subsequently would really be more strategic violence. It would be organizationally produced. It would be targeted in a way that allowed for plausible deniability. And the Klan oftentimes would not only look down upon, but would in a genuine way sanction members who independently would go out and commit violence. And it's not because they were against that violence per se, but they knew how vulnerable the organization would become if they didn't tightly control when and where and at whom violence was directed. On June 9, 1969, the Supreme Court reversed Clarence Brandenburg's conviction. The court was unanimous. The court's opinion was per curiam. That's a legal term that means that it was attributed to the entire court, not written by any particular justice. These later decisions have fashioned the principle that the constitutional guarantees of free speech and free press do not permit a state to forbid or prescribe advocacy of the use of force or of law violation except where such advocacy is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. As we said in Noto v. United States, the mere abstract teaching of the moral propriety or even moral necessity for a resort to force and violence is not the same as preparing a group for violent action and stealing it to such action. The Supreme Court said that because Ohio's criminal syndicalism statute allowed punishment of speech for mere advocacy of lawbreaking without requiring the advocacy to be directed at producing imminent lawlessness, 
it could not survive. And that, from more than 50 years ago, is still the standard for deciding whether speech is unlawful incitement outside the protection of the First Amendment. Incitement is protected unless it is directed to and likely to incite imminent lawless action. For such an important and enduring principle, the court's procurium opinion is quite short. The court treats its conclusion as self-evident from its most recent precedents, as if the outcome is obvious. But was it? Was it really? Justice William O. Douglas didn't think so. He wrote an opinion concurring with the court's procurium opinion. That is, he agreed with the result. But in a magnificent screed, he explained how the court had only gotten to the right result after 50 years of pursuing the wrong one. Douglas brought the receipts. He blasted the World War I-era Supreme Court and its justices and decried the flexible and unprincipled clear and present danger test, explaining how the court had used the specter of war to excuse infringement of rights. Those, then, were the World War I cases that put the gloss of clear and present danger on the First Amendment. Whether the war power, the greatest leveler of them all, is adequate to sustain that doctrine is debatable. The dissents in Abrams, Schaefer, and Pierce show how easily clear and present danger is manipulated to crush what Brandeis called the fundamental right of free men to strive for better conditions through new legislation and new institutions by argument and discourse even in time of war. Though I doubt if the clear and present danger test is congenial to the First Amendment in time of a declared war, I am certain it is not reconcilable with the First Amendment in days of peace. But Justice Douglas didn't just point a finger at the wartime Supreme Court. He also blasted the court of the 1950s, the era of the Red Scare, and described how the fear of communism had led the court to ignore the distinction between acts and ideas. The lines drawn by the court between the criminal act of being an active communist and the innocent act of being a nominal or inactive communist mark the difference only between deep and abiding belief and casual or uncertain belief. But I think that all matters of belief are beyond the reach of subpoenas or the probings of investigators. The line between what is permissible and not subject to control and what may be made impermissible and subject to regulation is the line between ideas and overt acts. The key part of Brandenburg, as Justice Douglas suggested, is that it tried to separate out acts and ideas. It did that by requiring proof of actual danger, not hypothetical danger. It ended imagination-based limits on free speech. That is, it stopped the half-century trend of limiting speech if a judge could imagine how the ideas in the speech might eventually lead to violence or harm. Instead, as a standard for incitement that still prevails today, it asked for cold, hard facts. What is this person trying to do now, and is there a real chance they can do it? That change was crucial to protecting a very wide array of American speech. But the Brandenburg standard is not without its critics. Most of those critics aren't saying that the government should be able to arrest you for advocating ideas that might sometime, somewhere, lead to violent things. 
Instead, critics suggest that Brandenburg's concept of danger is too rooted in the technology and group dynamics of 1964. I spoke with Professor Richard Wilson at the University of Connecticut. He published a law review article called Incitement in an Era of Populism, Updating Brandenburg After Charlottesville. To be clear, like the vast majority of academics questioning Brandenburg, Professor Wilson is a fan of how it does protect important political speech. The standard was so well stated in Brandenburg that it stood the test of time. There aren't that many decisions by the Supreme Court that last over 50 years without any tinkering at all. And so one could say that, you know, Brandenburg, by virtue of its taciturn nature and its well-stated test, was just uh, the perfect decision for the time, and it stood the test of time. Another way of thinking about it is that courts have not wanted to touch incitement. Incitement is, is, is not been charged frequently by, by you know, district attorneys and, and by federal prosecutors. It's, it's just something that maybe it's a, it's a cultural explanation I'm going for. Just culturally, we want to allow freedom of expression as Americans, and we're very concerned about the government repressing speech. And so maybe it's both. Maybe it's the, the, the well-stated nature and well-conceived nature of Brandenburg combined with this sense, particularly coming out of that era of civil rights in the Vietnam War, that um, when the government gets involved in suppressing speech, you're on, a, you're, you're on to a, a, a losing track. But Professor Wilson points out that we don't even really know what imminence means in the context of online speech, and courts haven't given us the tools to define it. So Brandenburg was created at a time when there were just a couple of TV stations. There were three or four TV stations. Cable TV hadn't been invented yet. We primarily got our information through the six o'clock news and, and Walter Cronkite and and there was the Times and the Post and the Globe and the LA Times. And so there were a handful of prominent influential newspapers. And there were gatekeepers. There were gatekeepers in all of those places who exercised their judgment about what could and couldn't be stated. It's a completely different environment now. Everyone has been handed the megaphone and an individual can generate thousands or hundreds of thousands or even millions of followers on Facebook or Twitter or any of the social media applications, which presents particular challenges for implementing Brandenburg. So if we look at the imminence and probability prongs of Brandenburg, how would a police department or a district attorney think about the possible offline effects of online speech? given that that online speech is, is very new. We've, we've only had maybe six or seven years of lots of Americans being on social media. So we, we don't have a lot of evidence, empirical evidence, about whether online speech advocating violence or advocating harm against particular groups can have offline effects. The evidence that we do have much of which is still unpublished, indicates that there is a correlation between online incitement and offline harms. So we have to take that seriously. And I, I wish that the courts would elucidate these elements in their judgments more carefully and more explicitly 
and give us more guidance on how they view imminence and probability in a new social media online discourse environment. Because right now, we're flying blind. Put another way, we no longer have a shared understanding of what it means for speech to be intended and likely to cause imminent harm in the modern technological context. I like Brandenburg. I like Brandenburg a lot. I like it because it gives us a focus on the content and the intent, as well as the context around it. I think indicating that a speech action, no matter how reprehensible, no matter how offensive, no matter how awful, and there are lots of them on social media, that we ought to tolerate it if there's a very low or no chance that it's going to cause any any subsequent harm or injury. And Brandenburg presents us with two elements of context here, imminence and probability. So I like Brandenburg. I think we ought to keep it. However, as you've articulated just now, my position is that we need much more guidance from the courts. We need much more in the way of explicit statements about the kind of risk assessment a court ought to make in thinking about probability, in thinking about imminence. In my article that you read, I I, I make clear that with imminence, we don't really know what imminence is. Is it now, now? Is it tomorrow? Or is it in six weeks? That's why we're still arguing about a legal standard that's been mostly static for 50 years. Legal rules about free speech are often very enduring, but social norms, technology, and historical context are always changing. Sometimes those changes are built right into the legal standard. For instance, when the test for obscenity asks us to apply contemporary community standards. But sometimes they're not. That creates a recurring free speech dilemma. Do we keep this Brandenburg standard for incitement, written in a time when the biggest extremist dangers were from face-to-face speech and pamphlets in the mail and the occasional radio or television broadcast? Or do we weaken First Amendment protection, saying the Brandenburg court couldn't have anticipated flash mobs and incendiary tweets and Facebook posts that could drive angry loners to violence in a way that's very difficult to police? There's always a temptation to fall back on the old cliché that the Constitution is not a suicide pact, and to say that the people who wrote and voted on the First Amendment, along with the Brandenburg justices, couldn't have anticipated the peril we face now. But is that true? The nation's founders laid out the constitutional framework based on their experience with government suppression of rights. When they wrote about the right to speak and assemble and petition the government, they were thinking about how a tyrannical government had suppressed those rights. The justices of the Brandenburg Court knew about censorship too. They had seen the World War I era of prosecuting people for protesting the draft. They had seen the persecution of people for advocating communism. They might not have foreseen Twitter, but they had seen tyranny. And they foresaw more of it. We should be cautious in assuming they wouldn't stand by their firm protection of speech during times like these. In this series of podcasts, I'll be telling more stories behind important First Amendment decisions. If there's a case you want to hear about or a First Amendment question you'd like answered on the podcast, drop me a line at ken at 
Thanks for listening. If you liked what you heard today, please remember to rate us on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Twitter or Facebook. Lastly, I'd like to thank our participants, voice actors, producers, and audio engineers for their participation. My guests, Professors David Cunningham and Richard Wilson. Our voice actors, Conrad Somm as Clarence Brandenburg. John Tallifer as Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. Evan DeSherry as Chief Justice Fred Vincent. Jordan O'Brien, reading for the Supreme Court. Tom Mile as Justice William Douglas. Producer, Kate Nutting. Executive producer, Lawrence Coletti. And last but not least, music, sound design, editing, and mixing by audio engineer Adam Lockwood. Audio of the oral argument in Brandenburg versus Ohio is provided by Oye, a free law project by Justia and the Legal Information Institute of Cornell Law School. See you next time. For a podcast that was created for new solos? Then join me, Adriana Linares, each month on the New Solo Podcast. We talk to lawyers who have built their own successful practices and share their insights to help you grow yours. You can find New Solo on the Legal Talk Network or anywhere you get your podcasts.